Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the Trans-Questioning Podcast. You can call me Zara, and I'm a person working out my issues with being trans. So, buckle up, I guess. So, a quandary. If I were to make a film tomorrow in which the main character is a trans woman, she goes to a bar, she meets a cisgender guy, they hit it off, they go on a date, they have a good time, they go back to somebody's place, maybe they go back to her place, maybe they go back to his place, maybe they go to a hotel, I don't know. They have a good, sexy, consensual time, and then he lifts up her skirt and sees that she has a penis, and suddenly, oh shit, he gets mad, he freaks out, you lied to me, you're not a woman, you're a guy, and you know, the trans woman's like, no, I am a woman, you know, why are you freaking out? And then, you know, from there, who knows what happens, maybe he hurts her, physically assaults her, maybe he just verbally abuses her. Maybe he just leaves. But either way, the the trans woman winds up feeling like shit. So, okay, this is a real thing that happens. A cis man will see a trans woman and think, she's lying to me. You know, she's a trap. She's tricked me into doing this thing. But despite the fact that this is a thing that really does happen, any trans person in the audience will be watching, thinking, why the fuck didn't she tell him? This is a danger that you acknowledge anytime you go out, like, flirting with people or trying to, you know, go on dates with people when you're a trans woman. This is an identity that you cannot ever afford to forget because cis-normative dudes just have such fragile sexualities that any possible hint at them not being perfectly straight even though technically this still would be them being straight, you know, they freak out. And, you know, of course, guys like to react with violence. So even though that's a factual story in the sense that it's based on true statistics, it's frustrating to watch because while it portrays something that happens in a realistic way, hypothetically, it falls into a trope. It becomes... A story of how a trans woman can never just date a guy because what if he freaks out? And then because this is just a story on its own, we like to draw conclusions. So we say this is what will happen every time. So, okay, we do a different version of this same film. We say same basic premise, trans woman at a bar hits on a, a, a cis guy, they hit it off, they go off to whoever's place, they get intimate, they start foreplay, and then he lifts up her skirt and he sees she has a penis and he's like, oh, but then he's into it. And he's like, ah, I guess my boundaries have been expanded and they have a great time and it's it's great, it's fantastic, it's wonderful. Well, then it becomes the opposite problem where a trans person in the audience is still thinking, why the fuck didn't she tell him? She's very lucky she dodged a bullet. And now because we like to draw conclusions from our stories, it becomes, this must be what always happens. It paints the statistical likelihood of being hurt physically or emotionally by a cis person 
as non-existent just by virtue of excluding it from the narrative because we like to create absolute narratives. We like to pretend that one story represents all stories. So then this perfectly fine, consensual, cute, optimistic narrative becomes problematic because it doesn't represent the statistics that made the previous version of that same story problematic. So, okay, we do a third version of this exact same story. We say, everything that I said about the second version is still the same. You know, they meet, they hit it off, etc., etc. But this time, this time, she explains to him before they do anything, that she is a trans woman. Hello, I'm a trans woman. I have a penis. Be aware of this. If that's not what you're into, totally fine. Just don't kill me when you find out. And it's great. The guy's into it. They go back to whoever's place. They hit it off. They do foreplay. It's a wonderful relationship, and it goes wherever the movie goes. So now, by telling this story, you're excluding altogether the statistical likelihood of violence against trans women. Now this story is problematic because it's too optimistic, because it's, 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 it's a happy romance story that belies the very real, very terrible problems that exist in our culture. So the question for me is, how the fuck do you win? How do you tell a story about human beings without falling into a trope or excluding some very important piece of information or pissing off some group of people? Obviously, the answer is you can't do it. It's impossible. Now, that isn't to say that one shouldn't try. I think a lot of the problems with Hollywood storytelling these days comes from the fact that people, because most writers are white, cis, males, they come from a very specific background and they take a lot of things for granted that they absolutely should not do. And the result when they try to tell stories that are from outside of their perspectives are stories that get it incredibly wrong. See, I wrote a book in 2012 called Good Morning Magpie, and it's I, I subtitle it uh, Talking Birds in the End of the World. That's not the actual book subtitle. That's just what I call it to people who ask me what it's about, because it's about talking birds in the end of the world. And it's easier to explain than to say what it really is, which is deeply complicated and weird and probably not a very good book. I've been writing stories for as long as I can remember. I study stories for fun. If I consider myself an expert on anything, it's an intuitive understanding of, 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 of story structure. And that's not something you can really be an expert in. I've been planning books for, for decades at this point. I had an entire like 12 book saga that was planned when I was in high school that I've basically just abandoned. And at basically any point in time, I have a handful of books that I'm sort of weighing the pros and cons of and doing research, research for. I've got two in my head right now that have been primarily in my head for the last two or three years. One is a science fiction story, one is a fantasy story, but I've always struggled to get anything finished in part because of what I've described in the past of this sort of bipolar tendency to follow the light of my passion into whatever room it leads me in. So I'll follow it and I'll and wind up in this room and I'll start doing whatever work that light entails. Like, this story is this room and I want to make this story and it's everything that I love and believe in. And then the light leaves the room and I follow the light and then I don't think about the room that's behind me anymore, even though I did a lot of work on that story and it's like, it's still perfectly fine. I could still finish it and make it great, but... 
you know, the light's not there anymore. So I got to do what I got to do what's in front of me now. And that's resulted in countless, countless unfinished projects that just sort of define my career as a creative person of just these, this, this long unfinished tableau of beautiful things that will never see the light of day. But in 2012, I finally finished a book and I did it because there was a series of deadlines where I wrote the first half of it to get into a contest for this website called Author Stand, which does not exist anymore. And to my surprise that the, the first half of the book actually won first prize and that I, I got me $500 and that was the first like money that I had ever been given exchange given in exchange for anything that I had ever written and then author stand put up that they had a, a novel contest after the novella contest and I contacted them and said hey is it possible that I could submit the second like the full version of the book for the novel contest even though the first half of it won the the novella contest and they said like as long as there's substantial revisions it's totally fine so I spent that year working on finishing the book, and I did. And I remember writing the last pages uh, <laughs> in 2012, uh, the day that the world was supposed to end, whenever that was, there was a whole thing about uh, it, you know, 2012 being the Mayan end of the world or whatever. And I finished the book that day, and I was up all night writing this final story and the book is partially inspired by a murder by death album which is also titled good morning magpie and most of the narrative comes from the song good morning magpie which is from that album which originally murder by death has a lot of concept albums and good morning magpie was actually the first album of theirs where i actually saw a narrative and it was actually the first album of theirs that didn't have a concept so I kind of just was like, I'm going to write the book based on this album. And I eventually pared it down to just the one song, although a lot of the ideas that the rest of the novel or the rest of the album gave me sort of filtered into the book. But I just had that song, Good Morning Magpie, on repeat for probably eight or nine hours as I was writing the finale of this book and I was crying the whole time. And I, I, I pushed this thing out of me and it was finally done and I read it and I did revisions and I'm immensely proud of it. And it's still, I don't think of it as finished because it's not like published, published. It's out there on the internet. You can find it if you Google it. It's on, I have a Gumroad page that just has whatever the most recent finished version of it is, which I think is three or four years old at this point. So that was like this big, big first for me. Like I finished a novel and I submitted it to the author stand uh, novel contest and I won the editor's choice which won me an iPad, you know, whatever. Keep in mind, this was the first iPad. So this was like a big deal in the sense of like, that's a big expensive thing. I didn't open it. I sold it on eBay for $1,000, <laughs> which I felt bad about. Basically, it's the moment that I decided to do that, but I wanted the money more than I wanted the iPad. So at last, I had this book under my belt. And then I became a social justice warrior. <laughs> and that ruined my writing career <laughs> i started researching women's issues race issues that was sort of my first real foray into the actual like human reality of it in america in the 21st century and in particular i became very aware of narrative tropes 
of the ways that women tend to behave, the way that men tend to behave in stories. And despite the fact that my book was composed entirely of animal characters, I still felt on looking back on it that it was immensely stereotypical in a, in a number of ways. So I actually went back and changed the gender of one of the characters to make them a woman so that things would be a little bit more balanced and that got me thinking about how often do I ask myself what race is a character, what gender is a character, what sexuality is a character, and why? And what I realized is that I, I don't. I, I don't. I don't ask those things. So I, have, I had all of these, these stories and these unfinished books that I had written that were very much expressions of a lot of unexamined biases on my part. And... I realized that I needed to deal with that shit. I needed to figure out what is a good story in that world. How do you tell a good story when there are so many problems that, you know, I personally wasn't aware of? There are so many like pitfalls that you can fall into. And to what extent are you, as a creator of narrative, obligated to tell a story that doesn't fall into those 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 pitfalls i don't know that there is like a good answer to that question but puzzling over it kept me from writing for a very very long time and even though i've said that i've been recovered from it for probably a year now i still haven't really been recovered from it like i said there's a couple books that i'm working on in the sense of like i'm constantly thinking about them but i have barely written a word on either of them and the thing is the consideration of what will this story mean to other people it can be paralyzing you don't want to be the person who writes a story that becomes one of the things that justifies internalized transphobia or misogyny or racism in another person. You don't want to accidentally confirm a bias in another person. But you also want to tell the stories that you want to tell. You know, you ha you follow the light of passion wherever it leads you. And there's an extent to which, like, if you question it too much, it just goes away. But here's the ultimate conclusion that I've come to, and which has allowed me to at least start to return to my previous expressiveness. It's not your job to tell an unproblematic story. It's not your job to avoid offending people. But as a creator, you do have a responsibility to take into consideration the potential trigger points for any given group of people. And it's not that if you find one, you have to take it out. You just have to have a reason for it. The problem isn't that stories are problematic. It's that they are problematic without reason. Nobody is complaining about stories because, you know, it's violent against women or because it's racist or because it's this or that or the other. It's because it doesn't say anything profound with that subject matter. This is the thing that I think a lot of creators miss when they get defensive of their stories when they're being criticized for like race or gender issues. It's like, oh no, but you're you're missing the point. It's about this thing or whatever. Or worse, you know, oh, but it's not really about that. You know, it's it's not really about racism and it's not something we ever even considered. The thing is that people latch on to the most obvious weakness in something that disturbs them. 
they see a movie that is, you know, fundamentally racist, sexist, what have you. They latch on to that surface level thing that, you know, disturbs them. And they say, this is why this movie is bad. And I'm not discounting that argument. But I feel like more often than not, that argument is more directly pointed at a fact that the movie does not say anything profound with the ideas that it's playing with. And that's the thing that gets missed. It's really easy to say, oh, these SJWs are just trying to take away free speech and ruin stories and make it not fun anymore. But really, all we're asking is for creators to just think a minute, to just stop and think. Why is it important that this story contains the things that it does? Why is this character transgender? Why is this character white and cis male and heteronormative? Why do they hit it off with each other? Why do they go where they go? Why do they react to each other the way that they do? Why does the cis man get violent or get excited or leave altogether? You have to ask yourself these questions. When you're writing, there's this passion that's driving you and you're, you're following the trail of this light and you're going wherever it leads you. And it's a wild ride and you don't really know where it's going and you can't really regulate that process. But that's 30% of the work at best. Once that passion is on the page, you then have to edit it, obviously. And it's in the editing process that you notice these things that are, like, you know, problematic. And you have to ask yourself, like, is it okay for this to be in the story? Does my story really need it to be this way? And if it doesn't, fucking change it. So going back to that very first example, if I were to make this film about trans woman asking out a cis guy without telling him that she's trans and they go and he reacts poorly in order for me to not lose a wink of sleep in the wake of making that film i would need to know that every element of that narrative was there for a very good reason it couldn't just be that it's dramatic or that it's something that happens in real life everything happens in real life it doesn't matter that's not a good justification it has to be because there's something in it that drives you. There has to be a message that, 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 that lives in the heart of the thing, that you peel away the surface, and there it is. And you arrive at this conclusion, and you, you hold it up to the world, this, this, this bloody, raw, beating heart. And even though it's painful, and even though it's problematic, you say, this, this is it. This is the thing. All of the work that I've done has been for this. This is what I want to show you. Even if it is problematic, it's justified. So in conclusion, just fucking have a good reason, man. Just tell a good story. Stop being lazy. Put some fucking work into your writing. Jesus. Hello, greetings from the future. So it is December 25th at 1 p.m. in my timeline. This is recorded a little bit after what you just heard, my uh, my rant about uh, storytelling. That recording actually went like 45 minutes long, and I thought, oh, that, that'll be like a pretty good little episode. And I always underestimate 
how much I'm going to cut out. Oh, here comes a cat. Come here. Come here, Shell. Hello. I got to record my podcast. Lay down. Lay down. You can purr if you want to. Okay, there you go. Shut up. Okay, be quiet, please. This is Shell. She's very loud. Yeah, you are. I'm recording in my living room right now, which is why there's a cat, and that's just because I don't feel like sitting up anywhere else, so. Compared to recording in my kitchen while I cook, or recording in my bathroom while I shave, uh, I feel like this is probably a much better uh, recording situation, all things considered. So you might have noticed from that time that I said it's December 25th uh, that it is Christmas for me. And I'm here uh, having my own sad little Christmas. Uh, all of my roommates are out of town. Either they're in Tulsa or one of them flew down to Austin. Usually I go with him to his family for, for Christmas, but uh, he flew, so I couldn't really go with him this time. So I'm just here, you know. Um, yesterday was nice. Uh, one of my friends took me and uh, his his nephew, I guess, to uh, this place in town that is basically like a board game bar. And it's really cool. Uh, but I, I taught them how to play Settlers of Catan. And we played another game. I can't remember what it was called, but it was a lot of fun. It involved coins and buying gems. It was interesting. And I, I basically... Since I finished editing all the stuff that I needed to edit, uh, I have I have a pretty long list of things that I need to do to prep for 2018. But um, I don't know. I've just been enjoying kind of relaxing and not having any deadlines. The uh, the the Star Wars video that I released a couple weeks ago now took a lot out of me, and then the weddings that I was editing also took a lot out of me. And now that's all finished, and I'm just kind of waiting to feel the the passion again or to make myself do do something so instead i've just been sort of playing through some some video games i finally finished prey i'm uh finally uh restarting life is strange because i was i never finished it so i'm gonna finish it now finally christmas is always sort of a melancholy holiday for me because it was really important to me growing up but uh you know, it was the 90s when I was growing up, and um, my parents were uh, lucky enough to be part of the, uh, the, the, the economic boom that happened then. So I feel like we had we were we were much closer to uh, I don't want to say upper middle class, but just like general like middle class than uh, we would later be. So my Christmases tended to be pretty damn extravagant and like my dad would build stuff for me and lots of lots of just lots of toys, lots of crap that I probably didn't need. Somewhere I have a box of uh, uh, Power Rangers, Zords and stuff that I saved and I want those back in my possession one of these days, even though what am I going to do with them? I don't know. But yeah, as time went on, uh, money got thinner. Uh, my parents separated. I just lived with my mom and we couldn't afford as much stuff, uh, which was fine. I, I got, I got used to it. I was, I was fine with it. Um, it was more about 
you know, just spending time with family as time went on. And I look at I look at people who have kind of Christmas traditions and I tend to feel jealous because even the traditions that we did have for a little while just sort of disappeared because all the old people we used to celebrate with uh, just died. And then my mom died and I was sort of left without much of anywhere to go. Uh, and I don't have a car, don't even have my driver's license. And so I could go to Kansas to spend Christmas with my brother. I could go to Indiana and spend Christmas with my sister. I could go to Texas and spend it with my uncle. Um, but I don't, I don't have an easy way to get to any of those places. And I, I, I don't like putting people out and asking them to take me there. So it's just come to me hanging out here uh, by myself, just sort of sitting with cats and uh, feeling a little melancholy. But also the winter in general is my favorite season, but it's also sort of the saddest season for me because uh, they were. it was my favorite time of year as a kid. I always loved the snow and playing around outside. And um, of course, we moved to Texas where it never snows. So now I'm in Oklahoma where it mostly never snows. So I'm just sort of missing, missing all of that stuff. And um, it's also like December 13th is the day that my mom died. So that's sort of put a permanent stain on the season for me where I kind of just spend the whole time remembering the month where I was just living in our duplex by myself, sort of tasked with cleaning the place up when I really shouldn't have been. And of course, all of this melancholy just has me in a place of of doubt. I've been feeling kind of doubtful a lot lately. I know a lot in previous episodes, the, the most recent few episodes, there's a lot of me feeling very affirmed and very like, oh, I can't wait to start transitioning. But I'm sort of back down in the dumps and feeling like, yeah, what, what the hell am I doing? What, uh, what, what do I, what, what am I thinking? Um, uh, it, because the the prospect of finally starting is 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 open. Like I've, I'm making plans. Oh, there she goes. Bye, Shell. And I'm making plans for the new year. Like I'm at least gonna start laser hair removal. I'm planning to have my first session in January and go through March. It will go until it's done really. Uh, and then after I've had three sessions of that is when I'm going to look into starting uh, hormone replacement therapy. Although I'm going to gather as much information about all of that in the near future. <sighs> and, but still with those plans, I'm like, is that, is that really what I w want to do? And I feel like really what the, the more important question is, why, why am I doubting myself? And I think the answer is, has more to do with how I'm just feeling right now. So in episode six, obviously, there is a lot of me kind of sobbing about the, uh, the situation in, in my household with my roommates. And that's changed a little bit in some ways, but it hasn't gotten much better. Oh, I don't know. I'm still figuring it out. And I'm, I'm in a place where I think that maybe there's no walking it back and that I'm just sort of stuck having to do my own thing come the summer. And it's, you know, it's genuinely disappointing. And I don't know, I, I, I don't know how to, how to fix what's wrong with, with all of my relationships. 
I don't know. I'm just so intimidated by everything that follows uh, really kicking the transition into gear, uh, changing my my wardrobe, learning makeup, learning social cues, just generally changing everything. I don't know if I want to fuck with that, but I also realize I don't have to. And that's what's challenging is there's so much... Even in in the stuff that's really like affirming, like the subreddits that are uh, dedicated to how cool trans people are and sort of just letting people share their stories, just by virtue of the fact that there's so much of the shift from one side to the other in terms of the, the, the binary that there's this sort of subconscious effect that's created that you feel like that's... That's how it's supposed to be. And for me, getting laser hair removal, starting hormone replacement therapy, losing weight, all of those things, it's less about wanting to to fit in as like a woman publicly, generally, and more about me wanting to have a, a body that's more closely mine and also uh, wanting to feel more emotionally whole. I keep rereading uh, Zinnia Jones's essays on depersonalization as she continues to do research on it. And it keeps describing specific elements of my like psychological experience. And she describes uh, a period where she w- was forced to desist for about a month and she had to ration out her uh, her, her medications, her um, her andro blockers, and her estrogen. And she describes like within within a week, starting to feel disconnected from herself and having a difficult time engaging in normal conversation, I guess, and and engaging with other people. And that seems to have put. into perspective for her sort of what depersonalization actually feels like because when you're when you feel good it's hard to remember what it felt like to feel like shit and you kind of think like this is how i've always been and that's sort of where i've been the last month or two sort of feeling very good uh and now i'm on kind of a an emotional downturn that that has less to do with what's going on inside i think and just more to do with me feeling kind of defeated by everything that's going on i don't know if this is a real thing i don't know if i'm just making this up but i paying attention to myself and i, I tried to describe this to my psychologist and, and failed to do so but I, i've been feeling like a lot of my emotional state can be blamed on testosterone at least a little bit or the way that i I view the world somehow something something about it I just noticing the things about myself more that I the, the things about my my mind my this 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 feeling in my gut like the sort of physiological pressure that I feel flowing through me at all times and you know maybe it's maybe I'm, maybe I am making it up maybe I'm Hoping that, you know, like everything else, I'll start hormones and magically I'll be a better, I'll be better, you know, it'll fix me. And 
you know, nothing ever fixes anybody, right? Like you got to work on yourself and that's what I've been doing. And I feel genuinely better in a general sense, but I mean, it still hasn't been enough. I need to get a job. I need to, there's so much I need to do. And the prospect of like getting out into the world and starting a job and start all of that shit, you know, at, at the outset of me starting transition is like, what, what uh, I'm, I'm, I'm making this as hard for myself as possible. And like I've said before, you know, I don't know that I want to change my name, uh, or even change, like officially change my gender. I don't know. I might have to at some point, but like my name, uh, the, the, the name that I've picked the Zara, um, I'm still, I'm still uncertain about it in terms of like, that was something that a friend sort of threw out jokingly and I kind of liked it and I adopted it just as a way to uh, play around with the idea of having a different persona. And it's sort of stuck in that I like I like the sound of it. I don't know that I love it. It's it, it it's sort of it's just sort of a weird name. And one of the things that I've been noticing is that a lot of trans women sort of go with uh, very identifiably female names. So they almost always end in an A. And that's something that I notice in my own writing where I, I tend to pick names that end with an A whenever it's women. And I don't know why that is. And I always try to fix it because to me, it's distracting. I don't know if it's distracting to anybody else. So much of trying to, to start transition is like, I'm going to change my name. I'm going to change my gender. I'm going to change the way that I present. And these are all things that you take for granted in your daily life. You know, you don't think of them as... Uh, optional parts of your identity, you think of them as as intrinsic things that are just granted. And then now it's like, uh, okay, I want to change my name. And how long will it take for that to feel normal? I want to change my gender. And, you know, I feel uncomfortable saying, you know, I'm, I'm a woman, whatever, because, you know, as I've expressed before, I don't know, I, I feel like I haven't earned it, even though everybody has told me that that's bullshit. And I would say to anybody who said that, that it's bullshit. But of course, I am exempt from my own criticisms, my own advice. And I imagine everybody starts off feeling ridiculous, you know, when you go out and and you're wearing different clothes and you're presenting as a woman for the first time, you know, it's, it's gotta be so completely alien to you. And you just feel like, you know, you're a sore thumb out in public, but probably most people just don't notice. And it's like the whole experience is that where you're just making yourself hyper visible. It's, it's, it's terrifying. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a solitary person. I'm not doing it because I want to look like, generally look different. I, I do. I want to look in the mirror and, and, and like who I see, but I don't, I don't really care what people see of me besides just that I want to dress the way that makes me feel good. So some days that'll be like probably the clothes that I have now, because I don't, I don't have the, the dysphoric element that a lot of people do. I have, but it's, it's quieted down now that I've started losing weight. And I think it, it, it was always more about hair than it was about fat. Although the fat was uh, always an issue too, but it's become less so. I mean, I've, I've lost what, 35 pounds at this point since August. 
now that I've made like shaving my body a regular deal, I've gotten more comfortable with my shape and I have a better sense of where I am now and where I could end up if I keep up with my diet and keep up with my routine. And I get encouraging things from people every once in a while where I'm really worried about my chin. I um I got a wig and I tried it on uh spent spent the day in it just around the house and uh took some some pictures after I put on some some lipstick and some makeup and uh used one of those as my Twitter profile picture for a little bit. And I sent sent some of those pictures to my friends and um, I liked a couple of them, but a lot of them were like, oh God, my chin is so big. And it's of course, mostly because of camera distortion. But, you know, I feel totally unable to, to ever possibly remotely pass as a woman. And yet one of my friends was like, actually, you kind of already have a a female shaped face and your nose is is relatively fine and i've had a couple of people compliment me about my hands saying that i have pretty hands i don't i don't get that but i'll take it i guess uh and really the the most like dysphoric trigger that i have is my the ha- the hair on my head just the fact that it's it's thinning you know and I keep going back and forth on this thought like you know if i uh, there's a good chance that i start hormone replacement therapy and that reverses my, my, my thinning hair because it's not gone yet. It's just, you know, thinner. And there's a pretty good chunk of people who describe that going away. And I've looked at like progress pictures that people have shown of, you know, their hair thickening up. And so the possibility of that is, is really exciting, but it's also like, I can't, I can't rely on that, especially because, you know, assuming that that does happen, it will be well over a year on hormones before that effect is, is, is noticeable. So if I want to like go out, I'm looking at, at wigs, you know, and I'm, I, I've done, I've done a lot of reading, but it, it, I feel like it's never enough. There's, there's, uh, when it comes to stuff like that, you know, reading can only tell you so much. And Shell, chill out, please. Oh my gosh, she's so weird. Come here. Come here. Quit freaking out. Just sit here. Oh my goodness, Shell, chill, chill, lay down. Chill. Hush. You're fine. Okay. The reading can only tell you so much. And so, you know, I put on, I put on a wig and it's the first time I've ever put on a wig and it's probably not a very good one. And, uh, the hairstyle is really wild. It's not one that I think, well, not, I don't, I don't want to say wild, but, uh, there it's, it's, there's more bangs involved than I'm ever used to. And so I feel very strange in it. Wearing it was odd because I realized that I haven't had really like long hair since I was in high school. So I just wasn't sure how to deal with it. So, you know, if, if I want to present as a woman at any point in in the near future, I'm looking at wigs, you know, and that, that scares me because, uh, that's money. There's so much, there's so much cost, you know, there's so much like having to buy different clothes and women's clothes are so fucking expensive and wigs are expensive and makeup is expensive. And, and then you have to know how to use all of it it's just so exhausting to think about. But is that going to stop me? 
Like, should it stop me? Should I hold off and reconsider my plans? I feel like that's what I always do. So many of the problems that I have right now come from the fact that I get excited about something and then I'm, I'm, I'm way into that thing for weeks or months. And then the, the prospect of following through on it and continuing it, you know, dawns on me and... I decide that, you know, I don't know the perfect way to, to do that thing. So I start walking it back. You know, I spend a lot more time trying to figure it out. And it's like, well, I need to I need to figure out the perfect way to do this. And then that's an excuse for me to just not do it. And then I don't for maybe forever. Maybe just the logistical fear of everything is sort of tempering my my desires and tampering <laughs> tamping down the enthusiasm that I had have had I probably shouldn't talk about this because I know my uncle listens to the show but it's been on my mind and I'm going to I'm going to be indirect but basically my uncle expressed skepticism about my uh, transition and tried to encourage me to uh, hold off. And his argument was that I should wait until I'm in a more financial, financially stable position before I, I make that choice. And also, you know, just generally to think about it more and reconsider and, see, you know, see if it's really the choice that, that I want to make. Because obviously, you know, I don't have a job. I'm, I'm a student still. Uh, I'm very much figuring out what I want to do with the rest of my life. And like I just said, transition's expensive. But the possibility that hasn't been entertained in that argument is that feeling more like myself, whatever that means, feeling like I belong to my body, having that sort of psychological presence. What if, what if that allows me to 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 be able to do more work to get myself into a more financially stable position and i also keep thinking like what if someone has a, a, a is suffering from organ failure and they need a liver transplant and of course here in america that's really dang expensive do you say to that person you should wait until you get into a more financially stable position to have your organ transplant that you need to survive. Obviously, it's not exactly the same thing because being being pre uh, pre -tra pre transition transgender isn't the same sort of immediately life threatening condition. But at the same time, suicide rates are high among pre-transition transgender people. Shell. I'm having a deep moment here. Quit interrupting. So it is it is it is an immediate health issue. And and transition is shown to be a, a, a very reliable preventative measure for the health risks that come from being transgender, i.e. suicidal thoughts and public violence to some extent you know like i said my hope is that starting hormones will have have a a marked psychological effect on me that will help me feel more like a person because even with the medication that i'm on right now as much as it's helped me there's still this lingering issue the the feeling that i sort of described earlier and it's it's 
it's a huge roadblock. And the fact that, you know, my, 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 my bipolar medicine and my ADHD medicine didn't fix that is a huge sign that I'm on the right path because it's more than just bipolar. It's more than just ADHD. It's also countless other things, honestly, but also depersonalization as a result of being transgender. When I'm sure of myself, when I'm overwhelmed by the feeling of like, I've, I've found me the last four months, five months, there are days when I, I feel f- feminine to, for, for lack of a better term. I'm, I'm still unclear if, if that term describes it exactly, but there, there are just times when I, I, I see parts of my body that are closer to what I want them to be. Or, or or how I've always felt that they should be to some extent. And in those moments, I feel better than I have in ages. And I, I walk around and I don't, I don't feel like everybody's staring at me. You know, I feel good. I, I, I feel happy. I feel embodied and like I'm able to, to take on the world, to put it in the most stereotypical way possible. And then there are times like now where I don't particularly feel that way. And I, I feel powerless and tired, completely out of energy, out of ability to participate in the world. I mean, you wouldn't say to somebody who needs any other sort of life-changing surgery that they should wait, you know, until there's until there's a more convenient time. And honestly, from I, I haven't I haven't looked into things locally, but pills at least are not that expensive when it comes to hormones. I mean, especially considering that estrogen is essentially birth control. <laughs> and who knows, maybe I start hormone replacement therapy and I hate it. And I, you know, it makes me feel worse. And I decide that it's not for me. Wouldn't it be better for me to get that out of the way now? Like I, I, I try it and, I, you know, I just feel sick and disgusting the entire time and then you know move on with my life you know dispel the illusion is it is it really better for me to wait two three four years you know constantly fantasizing about this thing that i want building it up in my mind as as more and more of a solution as the problems that i'm having right now continue to persist without any any resolution because getting a job isn't going to fix me getting you know starting a career isn't going to fix me i've got i've done all of that before and it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't get to the core of me why wait why leave that question open so long make it a a tantalizing mythological option for my for my future that the reality of which will never be able to live up to whatever i build it up to be and i've already built it up you know fairly extensively as you've heard you know i'm hoping that it'll have this this marked psychological effect that not every trans person describes although a lot of people do i'm just so tired of waiting and backing down and being on the defensive. There's so much I need to do. There's so much I want to do. And I'm constantly fighting myself to do any of it. And maybe maybe this isn't the thing that I think that I need, but I think it's at the very least a substantial step in the right direction. So I'm going to do it.
Hello and thank you for listening to this podcast. If you liked what you heard or thought it maybe helped you in any way, maybe consider going to patreon.com slash LTAS and donating a bit of money to me to help me do this for a living. LTAS, of course, stands for Let's Talk About Stuff, which is my YouTube channel where I do structured video essays about a bunch of stuff. One of my videos there is called Hello, I Hate My Body, which is sort of an offshoot of this very podcast. If you have any questions or concerns or ideas, ideas or thoughts or just general ramblings, you can email me at transquestioningpodcast at gmail.com. Of course, that is all one word. Again, transquestioningpodcast at gmail.com. I hope that you have a pleasant week and weekend, and I will see you again soon.